The Old Testament this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 18. I want to welcome everybody here who you're visiting with us. We're glad to have you here. If you're here and you haven't been for a little while, we're glad to have you back. Good to see Sister Antoinette again. Amen. Good to see Jenny. Seems to be on a rotating roster with her brother. She comes and he goes. Hopefully we'll be able to get them both here together at some time. But uh, good to see Sister Claudine and Brother Zachariah as well. Amen. Bless the Lord. Good to see everybody else too, if I didn't mention it. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 18. Brother Downs has asked me to teach on the subject of tithing at the National Ministers and Leaders Retreat in a couple of weeks. It's the second time he's asked me to teach on that subject. I'm starting to think he doesn't like me. But, uh, and I was going to, to use that lesson and teach it today because it's been a while since we have thought about giving and its place in our walk with God. But uh, I just feel like the Lord has nudged me in a different direction. So I'm just trusting that God's going to speak to us today. 2 Samuel chapter 18 and starting to read at verse 9. It says, And Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, and why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle, or a garment. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged thee, and Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life, for there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself wouldest have set thyself against me. As a wise man. Verse 14, Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak tree. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood, and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, every one to his tent. And now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and that he's called unto this day Absalom's place. Bless the Lord. Some of us are more familiar with the story of Absalom than others, but Absalom was the third son of King David. The Bible lets us know that he was a very handsome young man to look upon. He was particularly famous for his beautiful hair apparently grew very thick and very, very long and was quite a big deal when it was cut. seemed he had a haircut once a year, probably needed one more than that by the end of his life, it would seem. But he was very famous for his handsome appearance. But he was also famous for the fact that he was very smooth with words, able to attract people to himself. 
caused people to take up his cause and to follow him. And unfortunately, Absalom was a source of trouble for most of his life. We don't read a lot of good about Absalom. He desired to be in position and power. And eventually, when we get to our reading in this passage, he's leading a rebellion against his father, the king, against David. The battle goes against the young man, against Absalom, and in his efforts to flee, he becomes caught in a tree by his hair. And his mule just keeps on running. And Absalom is left hanging there, caught in the branches of an oak tree by his hair, suspended between heaven and earth. And as we read, Joab, who was the general of the army, and some of his men make very sure that that young man will never cause trouble again. And they killed him very quickly and without mercy. But then in verse 18, we read something that gives us some insight into the heart of Absalom. And I want to read that verse again. It says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's dale. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called unto this day Absalom's place. So while still a relatively young man, Absalom built a pillar or a monument for himself. He, in fact, the Bible tells us in another place that there were three sons that were born unto him, but their names are not recorded, and it seems likely that they died quite young. Their sister's name was recorded, but the three sons do not get a mention, and it seems that it's quite likely that they died in their infancy. And Absalom had a desire to make sure that he was remembered. It's likely that when he built this monument, this pillar, this tower in his own name, that he intended to be buried there and that it would be what he considered a suitable tribute to his own greatness. I want to preach this morning for probably just a little while about Absalom's place. Absalom's place. Amen. For all of Absalom's dreams and plans, his ambitions of glory and power, he was killed in battle, buried in a pit in the middle of the forest, and covered over with a great heap of stones that was a statement of his error. That fact, the fact that they covered him with stones was not necessarily a traditional thing, but it was an act of judgment against him for the grief that he had brought upon God's people. You see a similar thing take place when Achan, in the book of Joshua, is found guilty of sinning and bringing death, really, and, and, and loss of battle and loss of life to the children of Israel when he is stoned to death. It's not, it's not significant enough just to kill him, but they piled up stones upon him that it might be a statement of the grief and the problems that he caused his people. And so Absalom received a similar treatment in his end and that which he had built, that which he intended to stand in memory of him, silently mocked him for his own arrogance and his pride. Robert Burns, the famous Scottish poet, wrote a poem of all things about a mouse one day. He was plowing a field and he noticed as he plowed that his plow destroyed the carefully put together home of a little field mice. It turned it over, it didn't kill the mouse, but just destroyed the, the mouse's house. And in that poem, one of the lines that is very famous, he said that the best laid plans of mice and men 
often go awry or they go off course, they fail. And it's from this poem and this line that the famous author John Steinbeck took the title of his famous novel of Mice and Men. There is apparently a Jewish proverb that says that man plans and God laughs. The English equivalent is that man proposes and God disposes. But in the book of Psalms, with the word of God, which is always more valuable than the anecdotes of men, the 33rd Psalm and the 10th verse, the scripture says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices or the plans of the people of none effect. Ultimately, God is in control. And what we plan and what we dream of and what we allow ourselves to imagine is not always what will be. Because there is one God, the Bible tells us. And as a church, in the last couple of weeks, we have been praying and fasting. And if you've been participating in that, God bless you this morning. But our focal point has been the Psalms that said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. This morning, I want to try to bring that to a little bit of a conclusion of that focus, if I can, with the challenge that we have. And the, the Bible says in Psalm 37, let's turn to Psalm 37 together. I don't have a lot of scripture today. If you've never committed these couple of verses to memory, it would do you no harm to do so. Psalm 37 and 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. It doesn't mean that God decides that there are some good people and some bad people and he chooses to order the steps of those that he deems to be good. But when you choose, when you make the decision to allow God to order your steps, you become a good man by his goodness, not by our own. It's just not, you know, well, unfortunately, I was born a bad man. Somebody else was born a good man. God's looking after him, but I just missed out. That's not how it works. The power of choice is given to all of us. And when the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delighteth in his way. If we delight in the way of the Lord, our steps will be guided by him. And then verse 24 gives us an assurance that when God is in control, even when we fall, we shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Amen. That's a promise worth hanging on to because I'm not sure about you, but I know I've fallen. I know there are times I've let God down again and again, but in my efforts to delight in his way and to go back to having him guide my steps, he lifts me up with his hand. Amen. And my challenge this morning is who is guiding your steps? Who is guiding my steps today? What plans am I striving to fulfill? And if we can use our opening text as a paraphrase or an analogy, what is the tower or the pillar or the monument that we are building in our lives this morning? What are we constructing? Who is it for? And what is its purpose? Scripture shows us examples of the legacy of different people and how the towers, in quotation marks, of their lives revealed where their hearts were at. Bible tells us about a time when God desired or planned rather to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. In fact, today, even in the non-Christian world, Sodom and Gomorrah has become a byline for judgment and wickedness. And when God made that decision, there were people in that city 
that he gave an opportunity to escape, a man named Lot and his family. Some of them listened, some of them didn't, but those that listened to the warning were almost physically dragged out of that city as God's judgment began to unfold. And the strict instruction from the angel of the Lord was, do not look back. The Bible says that Lot's wife, for whatever reason, in that moment of time, looked back and was instantly turned into a pillar of salt. That was her legacy. That was her memorial. That's what she's become famous for. I don't know much else about Lot's wife. I can't tell you what her name was. I don't think the Bible tells us. Maybe it does and I've missed it. I can't tell you what her background was. I can't tell you much about her, but anybody that knows a little bit about the book of Genesis knows what happened to Lot's wife. In fact, Jesus in the book of Luke reached back to Genesis and he said, remember Lot's wife. He said, whosoever shall seek his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. The Tower of Babel, again in the book of Genesis, is famous for men building something unto themselves, a monument to self. They were disobeying the instruction of God. The instruction was to spread, to replenish the earth, but they said, we will build a tower. And in their hearts, it would seem, the desire was that they would get to a height where they would be above and beyond the judgment power of God. The memory of the great flood, still very fresh. But God said, no, no, no. And in just what seems to be a very simple act, he confounded their language. So when the bricklayer turned to his assistant and said, pass me another brick, his assistant heard him speak, I don't know, Japanese, a language he didn't know, and looked at him like, what? And instantly construction came to a halt because nobody knew what anybody else was saying. And that tower that men built in their own wisdom as a monument under themselves became a monument to the folly of the foolishness of humanity when it endeavors to defy God. We jump to the New Testament. We see Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 apostles, handpicked by the Lord himself, anointed like the other 12, other 11, sent out like the other 11, healer of the sick, deliverer of those that were devil-possessed, had the power and the anointing of God in his life. But somewhere along the way, something got into that man's heart, and we know that ultimately he betrayed the Lord, committed suicide, and his body was buried in a potter's field, and that place became known as the Keldama, or the field of blood. That was Judas's legacy. That's his tower. That's his pillar. That's what he's famous for. When we talk about Judas Iscariot, nobody talks about his ministry before that. Nobody talks about how he went out and ministered to the sick and those that were in need and did the miraculous. Nobody even associates that with Judas. Many of us don't even realize he was doing those things. But he was. But the thing that was built in his life that became his monument was his betrayal of God manifest in the flesh. And ultimately, the suicide that followed that. And now his name is not something that many of us want to give our children. I don't know many people that name their kids Judas. It's just it's one of those names you just, you know, you don't see it in the top-ranking baby names. And you know, it's just not there. Had his choices been different, 
it might be a different story. Had he made decisions about what he was building in his life that were more pleasing to God and less self-serving, perhaps he'd be one of the many names. You know, there are lots of Matthews, lots of Lukes, lots of these other names that we take from the New Testament. And Judas would be amongst us just like those other names are. But he built the wrong tower. There are some positive examples, and thank God for that. We find a young man by the name of Joseph in the Old Testament that God used through terrible adversity, horrible circumstances that he went through. But in keeping a right spirit and keeping his integrity, God was able to use him powerfully to deliver his family and ultimately build a platform for that which would become the nation of Israel. But you see, Joseph was very high-ranking in Egypt. You ever stop to wonder why Joseph said when he was dying, he said, when, he said, don't leave my bones in Egypt. He told his children and, and the people of Israel, he said, when you leave, when God brings you out of this place, don't leave my bones here. You know, in his privileged position in Egypt, he could well have had a pyramid. You look on the internet how many pyramids there actually are in Egypt. Some of us think there's only two or three, like me. But there's a whole bunch of pyramids in Egypt. And because of his prominence in society, he would have received a very distinguished burial. But you see, those pyramids are part of Egyptian worship, part of belief in the afterlife. And he said, this land is not my promise. Don't even leave my bones in this place. Take them. That is a place that I'm meant to be. He didn't want his legacy to be in an Egyptian pyramid. That to this day, people still think that aliens came down from outer space to build the things. Sorry, that's an illusion. We could talk about the Apostle Paul. You know, he could have built a pretty impressive monument to himself. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. The best of education in the fast lane for, for prominence in society. He would have been a ruler and a scholar and a highly respected man. Everybody would have known who he was. He would have had a legacy, but instead he spent his life in and out of prison, suffering at the hands of people that were his brethren, eventually in Rome in a dark, damp prison cell, and tradition tells us that his head was cut off in that city. There were no sons to bear Paul's name, there was no school or university named after the Apostle Paul. But for 2,000 years, Christians like you and I have opened their Bibles and read the epistle of St. Paul to the church at Rome, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Ephesus. To the... His legacy is not in the society he came out of. His legacy is that God used him. And we still have so much of the New Testament because of what he decided to be his pillar and where he decided to build his life. Amen. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, if you would, please. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. We sang it this morning, Christ is enough for me. Verse 2, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And verse 3 says, for you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
Let me make something clear from verse 1. When it speaks about Christ being on the right hand of God, we understand that's not a physical location. That's not some old man with a beard on the throne and some younger man representing Jesus on his right hand, right hand side. But when the scripture speaks about the right hand of God, it speaks of that place of power and of authority. The reason it mentions Christ and God together is that it is still in that role of redeemer and mediator for the church. He's still functioning in that role for us today. Amen. That's not that there are two different people, but it's understanding the role of that humanity that was given that we might be saved. That's why he gave his only son, that we might be saved. And when we are dead in our sins, when it says, for you are dead, we not, it's not talking about these natural bodies. We understand that, but it's assuming, because it's written to a church, it is assuming that we have been, we've repented of our sins, we've been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost because we are risen with Christ. And if you're going to rise, you've got to first fall. If you're going to be resurrected, you've got to first die. And when we die to ourselves, our life is hidden in Jesus Christ. He becomes our identity. It's no longer about what Simon Butcher wants. It's no longer about what any of you want, but it's about what does he want? What would he have me to build in my life? The only monument that is worth having in our lives is the cross of Jesus Christ. That should be our identity now, not having a pillar named after ourselves. Amen. When you identify with that death, burial, and resurrection through the new birth, Jesus becomes your identity. And it's all about him. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Bless the Lord. <clears throat> and I'm not too far off being done this morning. Romans 8 and 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to watch the next passage. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, when you read the context of this verse, there's, a, there's certainly a, a comparison between the law of the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament church, and I understand all of that, but we need to be careful. When we read this verse and we read about the flesh and the spirit, that we don't get to thinking that, well, that's talking about when I was in the world in sin and now when I'm in the church. No, no, it's talking about the, the fact that there is an option, even when you are in Christ, to endeavor to walk after the flesh. It's not saying this is the before and after. It's saying these are still two possibilities right here and now. When we're born again, there are still choices we make about which path am I walking on? What am I being guided by? What am I being led by? You see, when we walk in the flesh, while we are in the kingdom of God, our understanding and our perception becomes twisted because we are trying to fit something that is natural into something that is spiritual. And the two are not compatible. The Bible says that the carnal mind is enmity against the Spirit of God. And so they're, they're not compatible. 
It's like you take oil and water, that very simple thing we learn at school when we're kids. You put oil and water in a jar and you screw that lid on tight and you shake that thing until your arm aches and then you put it on the table. And it looks like they're combined, but give it a second and they will separate. In exactly the same way, it doesn't matter how much you shake it. The spirit and the flesh are not compatible. And if you try to walk in the flesh while you're trying to be in the kingdom of God, your understanding and your, your thinking and your reasoning becomes twisted. And the worst part is that you don't recognize it. Because you're thinking after the natural man. We don't realize it because we convince ourselves that we are in a right place. That our point of view is accurate. And that the tower that we are building is justified. Absalom, I have no doubt, was convinced that he was right in his actions. I don't think he thought he was the bad guy. Absalom, whether it was through counsel from others or just the perversion of his own heart and believing how wonderful people told him he was, he was convinced that he was right and David was wrong. And he was deceived because he was trying to take a position that came through the anointing of God. David was anointed to be the king. Absalom tried to take it by force. You cannot take the anointing by force. Amen. And Absalom only succeeded in bringing division and heartache to the kingdom. When we walk in the flesh whilst in the kingdom of God, that doesn't even sound right. But when we do that, we bring corruption. We bring heartache and we bring misunderstanding. The whole time thinking that where we're at is good. That's why the apostle said when we're in the spirit, there's no condemnation. Friends, you try to walk in the kingdom of God after the flesh, you will put yourself in a place of condemnation. Bless the Lord. One of the most dangerous places that you can be in your walk with God and hear me this morning, is to believe that you are further along than you really are. To think that you're at some level of spirituality and you're doing great and other people just don't understand. It's a dangerous place to be. When you think that others should be promoting you instead of holding you back, be very, very careful. You're in the flesh. You're not in the spirit. Bless the Lord. Let me speak to those of you that are involved in any form of leadership or ministry for a moment, or those that are being developed in any of those areas. Be very careful whose kingdom it is that you're building. Bless the Lord. We have to take great care about what the pillar is that we're building. We need to be very careful that we're not erecting something in our own name. It's not about Simon's place or anybody else's place, or Absalom's place, it's about Jesus. Bless the Lord. Anointing. We talk about anointing for a minute. Anointing is a little bit difficult to explain. It's easy. In the Old Testament, we see prophets took a horn full of anointing oil, which was, again, a special mixture that was not to be used for anything else. And they would take that and they would pour that on the head of somebody that God had ordained for a purpose, possibly to be a leader, possibly to be a king, whatever it might have been. But that 
that oil that then soaked through their hair and down into their garments signified that God had separated that person for that purpose. Now, we don't do that too often in the New Testament church. We, we pray for somebody, when we anoint with oil, we just put a little bit on their forehead or on their head somewhere. But in the New Testament, that oil that was literal in the Old Testament is represented by the Spirit of God in the New. And when God's anointing is upon somebody, it is God that takes care of things. Anointing is not found in the shout. Speaking of those that are involved in different forms of ministry, we are not anointed because we get loud. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit loud. I don't like having church in the library. Uh, this is a living thing. There needs to be some life in the house of the Lord. But anointing is not produced by our efforts to stir it up. Anointing flows from the giver that gives the anointing. When you're anointed, nobody needs to be told. They know. Bless the Lord. It doesn't have to be cranked up. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When people come to the pulpit, I believe in exhortation. I believe in encouragement. I do, but that should be because of the anointing, not in place of the anointing. Bless the Lord. This is the kingdom of God. When we are anointed, it flows. It flows. Hallelujah. I know the difference between being in the pulpit with the anointing and without it. And when, it's, when you don't have it, it's not a very nice place to be. And there is, look, there is no substitute. There's nothing that can fake it. Bless the Lord. My wife ministered a few weeks ago about being pillars in the church. Now, God is the one that puts pillars in place. Jesus said, I will build my church. Our job is to be faithful. Our job is to obey the word of God. Our job is to delight in his ways and let him order our steps. And if he builds us into pillars, then to God be the glory. Because the scripture says, To him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And then it says, whose name does it say will be written upon that pillar? Not Absalom's name. It says, And I will write upon him. Let me read it. Book of Revelation. Bless the Lord. Revelation 3 and 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. I will write upon him my new name. God is not interested in exalting you or I. If we're going to build something, church, it's got to be in Jesus' name. If we want the anointing to flow, it's got to be because we're submitting ourselves to Him. We want to see the power of God demonstrated. We cannot do it in the flesh. We must walk in the Spirit. I don't want to be an Absalom. I don't want to build something because I'm convinced that people need to remember me. I want to have a legacy like the Apostle Paul did, where the world thinks I've gone into obscurity, but God knows my name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stand with me this morning, if you would. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord for a minute.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Who's guiding your plans this morning? What is it that you're building? Who's getting the glory? If nobody ever notices you, does it matter? If nobody ever says you did a good job, does it matter? Is it about you or is it about him? Hallelujah, Jesus.